Luke 23, verse 50. I'm going to start reading. Luke 23, verse 50. If you could follow along, it'd be great. Uh, Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who did not consent consent to uh, their decisions and actions, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen, uh, shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been or had ever yet been laid it was the day of preparation and the sabbath was beginning the women who had come with him from galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid then they returned and prepared spices and ointments but on the first day of the week at early um, early dawn they went to the tomb taking spices, um, the spices and, and uh, they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in, in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Uh, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, uh, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and uh, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but they, these words seemed to them as idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, uh, stooping and looking in. He uh, saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Last week, uh, we went over the, the death of Jesus, and we saw how Within three hours, Jesus uh, on the cross, there was three hours of darkness. And in those three hours, somehow Jesus paid the price of sin. That we, we don't know everything that happened within those three hours. There's a mystery as the Father turned. Um, and there was some kind of separation between the Father and the Son. But within those three hours of darkness, Jesus paid the price of sin as, as God's wrath was poured out on him that, that we deserved. I ended last week saying that this is a, a two-part sermon. My, my goal originally was to, to preach on the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ all in one sermon. But as I was studying the death of Christ, I, I quickly realized that that was uh, not going to happen. And so um, uh, I ended last week saying this is the first part of the sermon because without the resurrection, the death is meaningless. In, in 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, it says, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Therefore, it was hard to end a sermon just on the death without covering the resurrection. So, this is the second part of that sermon. A pastor said, If Matthew had ended in, at chapter 27, and Mark at chapter 15, and Luke in chapter 23, and John at chapter 19, this would indeed be the end of the story. 
Jesus would have been just another failed messianic pretender who clashed with the Roman Empire and paid the ultimate price for his folly. In other words, without the resurrection, Jesus would have been just a crazy man, just a a person that thought he was God that got himself killed. However, each gospel adds an additional chapter in the case of John 2 that change everything. The story is not over, and the world is about to be turned upside down. New creation is about to break into the midst of old creation, and nothing will ever be the same. Last week, we saw the death of Christ. Again, God's wrath poured out on Jesus on the cross for us so that God's mercy can be poured out on on those that put their faith in Jesus. Today, we're covering the resurrection, and there's three parts of the sermon this morning, three different parts of this passage. The burial of Jesus is the first part. The resurrection of Jesus is the second part. And the reaction of the disciples is the third part. So that will be our outline this morning, starting with the burial of of Jesus. Look at verse 50 of chapter 23. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not um, consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. It's the first time in the Gospels that we're introduced to Joseph, which says he was a Jew, a member of the council, Right? meaning he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jews, meaning he was well-respected and, and very wealthy. And Matthew 27 actually says he was a rich man. Verse 50 in Luke says a good and righteous man, which follows an interesting pattern by Luke. Luke likes to point out righteous Jews in his Gospels. For example, the parents of, of John the Baptist is Luke 1, 6. It says this, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all, their, uh, um, in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. Or like Simeon, as we're getting close to the Christmas season, his story comes up a lot in the temple. And in Luke chapter 2, 25, it says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and, and devo- devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. Or Anna, who was a prophetess and a a widow, a Jewish lady that in Luke 2.37 says, did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying night and day. Luke wanted wanted to make clear in his gospel that there was many righteous Jews in the time of Jesus. Not perfect, not sinless, but Jews that truly had a love for, for God that lived pious life, and that were looking for the kingdom of God to come, looking for the Messiah. And Joseph was one of them. Even though he was part of the Sanhedrin, look at verse 51, it adds that he did not, um, he didn't consent to their, uh, to their decisions and actions. In other words, when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin condemned him to death for blasphemy, for claiming that Jesus for Jesus claiming that he was God, Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, did not agree with their decisions. Some say um, he must not have been there when the decision was made because uh, Mark fourteen sixty four says that, that the whole Sanhedrin, they all condemned him. But my guess is that, that Mark was probably just using hyperbolic language. In other words, just about all of them and just said all of them did. 
and Joseph was there but didn't agree. Either way, if he was there or not, Joseph didn't agree or consent to the decision that was made to put Jesus to death. Look at verse 52. This man, again, Joseph, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It's clear that this was a dangerous move. Disciples at this point were scattered and in hiding for a reason. It was dangerous to be a sympathizer with Jesus. He, he was just crucified for starting a rebellion. Even though he didn't do that, that, that's what he was crucified for. Therefore, his followers were in danger too. I mean, even before Jesus' death, Joseph was afraid. Mark 19.38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for he feared the Jews. He was a secret disciple of Jesus. Probably afraid of losing everything. His respect, his honor, his position, his job, his money, his life. I mean, think about it. He was a religious leader with the Sanhedrin and all the religious leaders there. That means he was inside the conversations that were happening. And it's obvious in the, in the Gospels, for some time now, the, the religious leaders were planning to put Jesus to death. They wanted him dead. He was hearing these conversations, and he was afraid. So he kept his belief in Jesus secret. But after the death of, of Jesus, something changed. And Mark 15.43 says that Joseph took courage. He took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, courage in Greek is uh, Paul Mayo, which means to be bold, as to defy the possibility of danger or opposition. In other words, he was putting himself in danger by asking Pilate for the body of Christ. And he wasn't alone. There was actually another religious leader that was with him, another secret follower of Jesus. John 19.39 says, Nicodemus also was with, Je- er, with J- Joseph. Nicodemus also, who had earlier came, come to, to Jesus by night. This is the same Nicodemus from John chapter 3, if you're familiar with that story. He was a, a, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, And John chapter 3 says he came to Jesus by night, kind of secretly, asking Jesus about the kingdom. Jesus told him he must be born again to enter into the kingdom. Nicodemus was with Joseph as they went to get Jesus' body. And actually, John 19 says, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, aloes, uh, about 75 pounds in weight. And if you didn't, it doesn't seem obvious. That's a lot. It's actually very expensive. I had someone come for a service. I, I haven't checked this, but they, they said, and I'm, I'm guessing it's probably true, that's in today's economy, that would be about $200,000 worth that much. It was a lot. It was a, it was a public way of showing how much Jesus meant to Nicodemus. Look at verse 53. Then he, being Joseph, took it, Jesus' body. So then he took it, down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a, in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever um, yet been laid. A tomb cut in stone was a very expensive tomb because it was hard to do it. 
You just have a massive rock that you're cutting into. It was very labor-intensive. And if you've seen pictures of this uh, tomb with the massive rock that they would cut and form to either roll into place, or a lot of them were square that they would flip over. The one in front of Jesus' tomb was round, that they would roll in front of the tomb. Very expensive. Only, only belonged to wealthy families. And, and most likely this tomb was made for someone in Joseph's family which was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9, which says, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Look at verse 54. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath um, was beginning. And this is a, a really important side note by Luke. Remember, Jesus died on Friday, and we said that it was dark from 12 noon to 3, and it was right around 3 when he breathed his last and died. That's 3 p.m. For a Jew, Sabbath was Saturday, and that started at sundown Friday. Therefore, it was important to get Jesus' body down off the cross and wrapped and anointed before sundown. They barely had enough time for that. Therefore, any elaborate or further arrangements for the, the burial, which would take time, had to wait till after Sabbath, such as perfumes, spices, or ointments. They all had to wait till Sunday for the proper burial procedures. With that in mind, look at verse 55. The woman who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned to prepare the spices and ointments. Right? These are the followers of Jesus. They followed Joseph to know where the tomb was. This is Friday night, right? As it's getting closer to sundown. So that they could come back Sunday and know exactly where the tomb was and where Jesus' body was to finish the burial process. This is important because there, there's a lot of skepticism that comes to the resurrection. And a lot of skeptics say that the women that went to the tomb went to the wrong tomb that was empty Sunday morning. But look at verse 55 again. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb. They knew exactly where the tomb was and how the body was laid. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. They went to the right tomb. Look at verse 56. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So that means Friday, Jesus was crucified, killed, and buried. Saturday was the Sabbath, and the women rested. And Sunday, Jesus was resurrected. Leads us to our second point, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. And again, I said, there's a lot of debate and a lot of skeptics that are skeptical of the gospel accounts, because when you read the four gospel accounts, it seems like there's some contradictions. You might have questions if you read through all four of them, which I encourage you to do, like, how many women were actually at the tomb? How many angels were there? To whom did Jesus appear and speak, and when? Listen, this is very important. I'm not going to go through and, and bring that all together this morning, but, but the gospel narratives are different, all four of them, when it comes to the resurrection. I want to be clear, they're not contradictions. They're just different. Actually, I believe when you read the four, four gospel accounts of the resurrections, it's exactly what you should expect from eyewitnesses of an unexpected, awesome, supernatural event. 
Imagine if there was just 10 of us this morning that witnessed a massive, awesome, spectacular event. Each one of us would probably talk about a different aspect of that event. It's only when you put all the testimonies together that you get a bigger picture. Right? I was going over the sermon this morning, and I was, I was thinking about this. My, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law live in Alaska and Palmer, where the earthquake just hit this, this weekend. They're okay. They're safe. A lot of stuff fell off the, the walls. They're a motorhome, or a, not a motorhome, a, like a fifth-wheel trailer that goes on top of the, it fell over. It was pretty crazy, and the, the bridge down the street was just destroyed, cracks in the road. Everyone's safe, but they have five kids, and I was just imagining if you asked each one of those five kids what happened, they'd all give you different stories, Right? And honestly, if you asked all five of them and they gave you the exact story, you'd be like, wait a second, did you guys talk about this beforehand? That's why cops interview a bunch of different eyewitnesses of a crime. It's not that they're assuming everyone is lying. They just understand that people see from their own perspective and only remember what they remember. And the four gospel accounts is exactly what we have. It highlights different aspects of the resurrection, but none of them contradict each other. And when you put them all together, it's actually when you get a fuller picture of exactly what happened. And we can thank God that there's four witnesses, four gospels, so we get a full picture of the resurrection. When you put them together, you really get some, some core truths, and I have five of them. Five core truths of the resurrection, just real quick. The first core truth is this. Jesus was truly dead. Right? Jesus was truly dead. The Romans knew what they were doing when it came to execution. They, they knew Jesus was dead when they put him in the tomb, and they brought him down off the, the cross. Second core truth is this. It happened on a Sunday morning. Third one, angels appeared and explained exactly what happened. Fourth core truth is the first eyewitnesses to the risen Christ were women. They were followers of Jesus, women followers. And the fifth core truth is the apostles and the rest of the male disciples refused to believe the testimony of the women. Those five core truths come across in all the Gospels when you put them together. And everything else is details that kind of fill in the gaps. They're important details, but they fill in the gaps of those five core truths. But I want to look at Luke's account this morning. So look at Luke Chapter 24, verse 1. It says this, But on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, right? Sunday was the first day of the week, and it's why we do church on Sunday. It's, it was the Lord's Day. You see in Acts that the apostles, right, the early church met on Sundays. They stopped meeting on the Sabbath. They met on Sundays. And, and you see even in, in Revelation where, where John has this vision of Jesus, and it's a very similar vision that, that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. The difference is Isaiah had it on the Sabbath. John had it on the Lord's Day, Sunday. It's why we have church on Sunday, not Saturdays. Luke 24.1 says, But on the first day of the week, right, Sunday, the third day after Jesus' death, which used to confuse me as a kid, right, because I'm adding days. Right, Friday, Sunday, that's, that's not three days away. Uh, Jewish people counted days differently than we do. Day one was Friday. Day two was Saturday. Day three was Sunday. So look at verse one. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went out to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. Sunday morning, right, they're coming back to finish the job uh, that was started Friday. 
But look what happens when they get there. Verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. The stone is rolled away, and Jesus' body is gone. And verse 4 says, While they were perplexed, right, confused. What, what's this mean? While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in, in dazzling apparel. And they were, were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but has risen. Can you picture this? For all the, the disappointment and, and confusion and, and watching Jesus die, these women that love Jesus are at this tomb that's empty. And these angels shining glory so much that, that they had to fall over on their face, say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Listen, we do not worship a dead Savior. Jesus is alive. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Acts two twenty four says, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by by death. Romans six nine says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus himself in Revelations 1.17 says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. We follow a, a living Messiah. The angel says he is not here but has risen. He is alive. Look at verse 4 again, because I love this. They, they were perplexed about this. They were confused. I mean, what's this mean? Right, they get to the tomb, the stones are all the way. Jesus was not there because he was risen. What does this mean? You know what it means? It means that Jesus' death, his life, his ministry has all been vindicated. It's all been proven. It's all been defended. It's been justified. It means that Jesus' own words and predictions are trustworthy. John 2.22 says this, When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered all that he said, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Listen, it means that the Old Testament prophecies are trustworthy, which prophesied Jesus' death. Psalms 22, Isaiah 53 but also prophesied that he'd be raised to glory and that one day Old Testament states would see their Redeemer. Job 19, 20, 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, after I die, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Listen, it means we're justified because God's wrath was satisfied. Romans 4.25, Jesus, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. The resurrection gives us assurance that we will not perish in our sins. 
Romans 8, 11 says, if, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the de- dead dwells in you, in other words, if you're a Christian this morning, if you've put your faith in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. He, that, that Holy Spirit that raised Jesus uh, Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, this means that the resurrection establishes an unshakable foundation for our hope. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection guarantees a future resurrected life for all believers. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then a few verses later in verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection means that Jesus has been glorified and exalted. Philippians 2.8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The resurrection declares Jesus is the right rightful ruler of all creation. Ephesians 1.19 And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in the age, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, and he and he put all things, all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church. The resurrection means right now, right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, interceding for those that are saved. Romans eight thirty one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, but more than that, was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Listen, the resurrection means that everyone, everyone will be raised from the dead. For the believer, for the follower of Jesus, they'll be raised to the resurrection of life. For the non-believer, for those that refuse to put their faith in Christ, refuse to follow Jesus, they'll be raised to the resurrection of judgment. John 5:26 And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of son of man do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Where are you, where are you this morning? Have you put your faith in Christ? Are you at peace with God? Because the resurrection is also a warning that Jesus will one day come back and judge this world. Acts 17, 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in, a, in, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given, given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen, the resurrection means we as a church have a responsibility to take the message of Christ, the risen Christ, to the ends of the earth, to the nations. Matthew 17, 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one this vision. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and as they, they, Jesus reveals to the three disciples that were with him his glory and shows them who, who he looks in his full glory, they were coming down this, the hill afterwards, and Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anyone. And Jesus does this throughout his ministry. Don't tell anyone. I'm the Christ. Don't tell anyone. Until, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And then he, demand, or he commands his disciples in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came to the, and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. When he was raised from the dead, it was all given to him. Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Listen, the resurrection has accomplished so much. It vindicates the gospel. It vindicates our hope. It vindicates our faith. It's the greatest event that's ever happened in human history, and it's our responsibility as Christians in the church to take this message to the end of the earth, to take this message to the nations. The resurrection accomplished so much. Which leads me to my last point. The reaction of Jesus' followers. I want you to think about this. I mean, I'm tempted right now to say, all right, amen, we're done, let's go, right? I mean, right after the resurrection, after all it's accomplished. But none of the Gospels end at the resurrection, Right? Even though it may feel like they should, it's the resolution of the story. Right, All stories have a growing conflict, and you see that with Jesus and, and the religious leaders, even the disciples as they're confused. There's this growing conflict. The, the climax of the story is the, the cross and death, and the resolution is the, the uh, resurrection of Jesus. And you think, right, the, the end of the story should be right there. But none of the Gospels end here. And this is especially true for Luke, who writes a whole other book, Acts. We've talked about this. Luke, the Gospel of Luke and Acts go together, those two books. Right? At the beginning of Acts, Luke says, hey, I'm writing you a second book, a second account. Meaning, the resurrection for Luke is right in the middle of the story. And I think if we ended our sermon here, right at the resurrection, we would miss a very important application point. An application point that I truly believe Luke Again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, therefore God wants us to hear this morning. Look at what Luke does in the next three passages. 
Right? He spends three passages, I think, trying to get this, this point across. Look, look at the similarities of verse 6. Okay, look at verse 6. It says this, Remember how he, Jesus, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. Right now, now, you might have to turn a page, but look at Luke 24, verse 25. Verse 25. Look at the similarities of this. And he, now this is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Let me just be clear, that, that's a rebuke. And Jesus calls these disciples foolish ones and slow, slow to believe, slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, now look maybe another page over in verse 44, Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All three of these passages, there's a similar pattern that we see. Bewilderment or confusion by the disciples, a rebuke by an angel or a rebuke by Jesus, instruction by Scripture, and then finally a call to witness. Right? Each passage has this. It's a common theme that we're going to be talking about the next two weeks as we try to close up Luke. I think there's an important lesson that we we need to learn today. Look at verse 4 again. Turn back and look at verse 4 again. It says, While they were perplexed about this. Remember, remember this is the the woman that came to the tomb. They were perplexed. They were confused. This is before the, the angel appeared. And they had questions like, why is the stone rolled away? Or how is the stone even rolled away? And where is the body? Who took it? You know one of the craziest things about the resurrection? For how miraculous the event is, one of the craziest things to me about the resurrection is there's not even a hint that these women were expecting a resurrected Jesus. They're just completely confused. I mean, you read the Gospels and you go, why didn't they get it? I mean, they should have known Jesus told them over and over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, I've gone over Mark 31. We should have this memorized. It says, And and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly to them. Why didn't they get it? One commentator said this, Despite Jesus' predictions... His own disciples did not seem to expect that Jesus w- or that God would raise Jesus from the dead. Death by crucifixion is just too great of an obstacle. It had completely overturned all their preconceived messianic expectations. There is no way um, God's true Messiah could die like that. There's two words that, that jumped out at me when I read this. They're, they're preconceived expectations. They're preconceived expectations expectations. Look at verse 4 again. They were perplexed about this. Behold, two men stood um, by them in, in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? 
Just so you know, too, that, that's a mild rebuke. In other words, you should have known better. Right? Jesus plainly said to you, third day rise, right? I mean, you should know this. But because of their sinful hearts, their dullness to hear, their slowness to believe, according to verse 25, because of their preconceived ideas and expectations, they didn't understand Jesus and they didn't hear him. When they heard one word, listen, when they heard one word, when they heard the word Christ, all their preconceived ideas and expectations flooded that word with meaning. Preconceived ideas from their education, their Jewish upbringing, their simple hearts and desires filled that word Christ, or in Hebrew, Messiah, with meaning. And it was a false meaning. It was a wrong understanding I mean, think about it. This is a common theme, obviously, as we've been going through the the Gospel of Luke for, for I don't know how long now. Um, Over and over again, right, the the disciples not getting it and Jesus teaching and re-educating them. And still they don't hear, they don't get it, even at this point. That's amazing. Listen, that's how powerful preconceived ideas can be. That's how powerful expectations can be. Women thought they were coming to a dead body. They had no idea Jesus would be alive. Look at verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was, was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Over and over and over again. Verse 8. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb. They told all these things to the eleven and um, to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and uh, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Would you just take a second with me and, and picture this? So they, they have this angel that comes and, and, and tells them, hey, remember Jesus told you that this would happen. He's alive. He's been risen. And, and they rush back to go tell the disciples what has happened. I want you to imagine with me what they would have said, right? I mean, think about it. They would have gone back and said, we went to the tomb. The stone was rolled away. The, the body was gone. And an angel appeared in, in, in this glorious light. And, there, and there's a few women that are saying this that, that were there. This angel was proclaiming that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is alive, just like he said he would be. I mean, surely the disciples would believe this, right? I mean, after all the crazy miracles, feeding thousands, walking on water, healing whole cities, raising other people from the dead. I mean, they've seen him raise someone from the dead. Surely the disciples would remember what Jesus said, third day raised and believe. Look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. In their minds, they're thinking, you guys are crazy. Right? There's, there is no way you're making up stories. Listen, this is how powerful preconceived ideas can be. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stopping and looking in, he saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter, just like 
the women and everyone else, perplexed, confused, even in awe, but not believing, right? He didn't get it. Why didn't they get it? Why didn't the disciples understand? Well, the answer is simple. Right? And it's a common theme, like I said, throughout all the Gospels. They had too many preconceived ideas, too many expectations, too many presuppositions, things that they presupposed would be true about one word, Christ, Messiah. And because of this, they interpreted the words of Jesus through their understandings, through their, their own traditions, and said in their heart, he must be speaking metaphorically when he talks about death and resurrection. Listen. They interpreted the words of Jesus by their own preconceived beliefs and convictions instead of letting Jesus' words change their beliefs. And that's our application this morning. I want you to think about that. I mean, I mean for how amazing the resurrection is, Right? And how joy-filled that event is and, and for how important. I mean, it's why we meet on Sundays and it's why we celebrate, have Resurrection Sunday and Easter. It's, it's so important for all the resurrection accomplished, even theologically. I truly believe Luke, again, inspired by God, wants us this morning to hear how clueless the disciples were. Because they didn't let Jesus' word change their expectations, reshape their thoughts, reshape their beliefs, reshape their theology. They didn't renew their mind with the word of God, as Romans 12 tells us to do. Listen, we're in danger of doing the same thing every single time we open up scripture. All of us, all of us come from diverse backgrounds, diverse upbringings, diverse educations, we all bring to Scripture church traditions, cultural biases, life experiences, and it affects how we interpret Scripture. And so those things aren't bad things. We just need to be aware of them. Just like the disciples, we all have preconceived ideas, and it's our, our duty as faithful Christians not to let our preconceived ideas shape our understanding of Scripture, but let Scripture shape our ideas. Let me just give you an example of this. And I had like five examples, but we don't have time. We have eight minutes, so um, we'll go through one example. I, I, the seminary I went to, which I am very proud of, um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, it's an awesome seminary, is very old um, and I didn't know this until I went there. It was founded in 1859. The seminary's been around for a long time. Before the Civil War, the founding fathers of the seminary, I believe, were all godly men. Amazing theologians, men of God's word. If you go to my office, I even have a cup of James Boyce that I drink my coffee from. His picture's on the front. It's the College Luke Thompson. I have it in my notes. I was going to mention it. Just saying that. The college that Thompson goes to is called Boyce College. It's named after James Boyce. I believe he was an amazing man of God. He was a slave owner. For how obvious to us the slave trade and, and slave ownership of early America was a horrific evil. Many slave owners and slave traders were devout Christians. And on top of that, believed 
the Bible justified their actions. And that's not just an early American problem. Throughout history, this is what one, one historian said, throughout history, the church is filled with people who consciously or unconsciously perverted the message of the Bible because of ideas, experiences, and convictions they brought to the text instead of letting the Bible reshape their ideas, experiences, and convictions. One theologian said it this way, each of us come to the Bible with a rich background, and that's a good thing. That's a good, that's not a bad thing. Our upbringings, education, and various life experiences all shape who we are. It is impossible to rid ourselves from our experiences when we read the Bible. But at the same time, it's crucial for us to let Scripture shape our, um, our experiences rather than allow our experiences to shape our understanding of Scripture. The Bible is God's word to us, and we need to hear what God has to say about our, about our lives. If we simply read the Bible as a self, in a self-justifying way, Right, just, to, just to prove a point, we will not allow the power of God to transform us. So this is going to be a common theme the next two Sundays. And I want to enter into this theme with a challenge to our church. When you think through some of the more controversial topics in, in Christianity, especially within the churches, topics that have split churches and denominations, such as the inerrancy of Scripture, baptism, predestination, election, God's wrath, hell, demons, church government, end times, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, healings, prophecies, the Trinity, justification by faith, and so on. If you have a strong conviction about any of these topics, right, if, if I said one of those words and you got like goosebumps, maybe you have a strong conviction on that, or there's a topic in here that you have a strong conviction about, and convictions are good, I'm not saying that, but if you do have a strong conviction, I have two challenges for you. First is this. You have a strong conviction because you built it off a deep study and understanding of Scripture. Or is it more a conviction of upbringing, tradition, or because of an experience? That's my first challenge. My second challenge is this. Would you be willing to change that conviction if Scripture proved your conviction wrong? Because the disciples weren't willing. When Jesus plainly said to them, I am the Messiah, I am going to die, Peter rebuked Jesus. And they didn't hear him, they didn't listen to him, they didn't believe him. They weren't willing to change their beliefs over one word, Christ. Let us be a church that builds our conviction on Scripture. Let Scripture be the foundation of our church, nothing else. We're going to talk about this more next week. If you pray with me, we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we are in awe of you and in your love, Lord, that you would send your son to die on the cross and, and die for us, Lord. You would take the, the sins that we deserve and pour it out on your son so that you can pour out mercy on us, Lord, for those that have put their faith in you, God. I pray, first of all, Lord, if there's someone that doesn't know you this morning that hasn't put their faith in, and truly trusted you to the point of following you with, with whatever you tell them to do, Lord,
pray that they do that this morning. They don't leave without putting their faith in you, Lord. Lord, I pray for our church, though, God. I see as we get to the end of the gospel for how awesome the resurrection is, Lord. You don't end there. You show us that, that when I first was thinking about this, it seems like not near as important as the resurrection, this idea that, that our preconceived ideas can, can shape our understanding of Scripture, Lord. As I look through church history and see the, the horrific things that have been done in the name of Christ, I realize it is a big deal. Help us, Lord, I pray for our church, that we are a church that puts our foundation on your word, Lord, that we don't look anywhere else for the foundation of our beliefs, God. That We don't let our experiences, our traditions, or anything else shape how we do Christianity, Lord, but we let the scriptures shape us, Lord, knowing that, that experience and traditions are important things, God. Help us to be a church that's built off your word, though, Lord, that finds their convictions in your word. We pray for that in your son's name. Amen. You are dismissed.